It seems kind of hopeless right now, but you're going to figure this out. This is pretty debilitating. I'm able to turn my pain into purpose. There are people out in the world that do understand what you're going through. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Rohan about his recovery from long COVID. Rohan is an inventor with a background in neuroscience, researching how meditation affects the brain. He contracted COVID right at the beginning of the pandemic in March of 2020. And not only did this cause long COVID, but he actually had a small stroke due to his COVID infection. Long COVID forced him to put his life on pause. He experienced extreme mental and physical health symptoms. The first nine months to a year were a blur of not being able to use his brain due to extreme brain fog. Eventually, he started to realize that he was never going to dig out of this hole unless he applied himself and his own medical research background to try to find some relief. Rohan began researching what other people were saying about long COVID, and he ran across a theory that there might be some lingering virus in the body of those with long COVID. So with his doctor's help, he started experimenting with different combinations of medications in the hopes of eradicating any lingering virus in his body. What he ended up trying was a combination of two medications. The first is Paxlovid, a medication many of you may be familiar with that is now prescribed for COVID patients when you have an active infection that is supposed to help slow the replication of the virus. But Rohan tried this with the off-label use of combining it with a second medication called Evusheld, a monoclonal antibody that is used to help protect people from COVID who are unable to get the vaccine for one reason or another. Rohan had been tracking his white blood cell count since getting COVID, and it was actually low enough that he qualified to get Evusheld. The idea to combine these medications was actually inspired by HIV treatment, where you typically try multiple drugs at the same time in combination. And his hope was to target any lingering virus in his body by attacking it on two fronts at the same time, flooding his body with antibodies from healthy people who were able to recover from COVID, while suppressing replication of COVID through Paxlovid. It took several treatments, but Rohan started to recover, and he will talk us through the specifics of what he did on the podcast today. Rohan has been in recovery from long COVID for about a year, and is now working with the nonprofit Long COVID Trial Initiative in the hopes that his results might be replicable for other people. I recognize that there are so many people out there deeply affected by long COVID. We've had some amazing episodes of this podcast talking with a few of them. And the idea of coming up with a treatment for long COVID is extremely exciting. So I want to just preface this conversation by saying that this is one person's experience. It is way too early to know if this will work for other people. If hosting this podcast has taught me anything, it's that every single person's body is unique. And finding our way through chronic illness is also unique to each individual. Whether or not what Rohan has discovered will work for other people remains to be seen. But I'm so excited that there are brilliant people out in the world like Rohan working on this problem, working to find something that can help the countless people out there affected by long COVID. And with his background in research, it's so exciting to hear him talk about how this pandemic has inspired so many people to research different facets of chronic illness that have just been ignored for so long. Before long COVID, there was chronic fatigue syndrome, myalgic encephalomyelitis a very similar post-viral illness. And Rohan is a firm believer that the things we're learning about long COVID and COVID-19 in general will be applicable to other chronic illnesses in the future. It's more important than ever in this episode to remind you that this podcast is not intended as medical advice. 
Rohan will walk us through what he did to recover from long COVID today, but it's so important to stress that the combination of medications that he used is experimental. And I, as a content creator, have no idea if, you know, the medications that Rohan was taking, if they're safe to combine. I have no idea how hard it would be to replicate this for someone else or if it's worth talking to your doctor about. All I know is that this is what worked for Rohan and he is pursuing this in the best way forward, trying to find a way to share this with other people. And it's just a really exciting story to be able to share on the podcast today. So I'm really excited to be sharing this one with you. Rohan will also tell us about a biofeedback device that he invented called the LEAF, L-I-E-F, as in relief. It is a wearable device that measures HRV, heart rate variability. And after we talked, Rohan actually sent one to me for me to try out. So I can tell you exactly what this thing does. It's actually such a cool device. You wear it just under your heart, under your shirt, and it monitors your heart rate variability throughout the day. If it notices a dip in your HRV, it vibrates to basically alert you that you're probably stressed and need to take a moment to do some deep breathing and relax. It helps to guide you through deep breathing exercises with a visual component on the actual LEAF app on your phone. And as you're taking these moments to stop and breathe, it measures the change in your HRV and keeps track of that for you. Rohan will tell us about HRV in the podcast today, how it can be used as a measurement of stress and mental health. Rohan calls the LEAF meditation with training wheels a data-driven way to get feedback while learning how to meditate. And I'm someone who's never gotten into meditation. It's something that I've never really had the patience for. But since trying out the leaf, I've realized how easy it is to just stop throughout the day and take a deep breathing break using the breathing method that he will also describe on the podcast today called a downtime breath. It's a very simple thing to do, and I've actually found myself using it when I feel my body getting stressed or maybe a flare-up coming on of my own chronic illness, and it has been a useful tool. I know a lot of us in this podcast community have heart rate issues, either from high heart rate or from something like POTS with extreme heart rate variability. So I very much appreciate Rohan's perspective on meditation, trying to make it more accessible and data-driven for those of us who might be skeptical about the type of results you can see from meditation. After hearing Rohan describe this device and how it works, if you are interested in trying one out for yourself, He's been kind enough to set up a discount code for listeners of this podcast. You can head to getleaf.com, G-E-T-L-I-E-F.com, and use the code MAJORPAIN for a 15% discount at checkout. That link is in the show notes of this episode. And also keep in mind that there is now an FDA-approved version of this device that may be covered by insurance. So stay tuned for the podcast today. Rohan will cover all of this during our discussion. What a great episode. I am thrilled to share it with you in just a couple minutes. Let's get into our announcements for this week. First of all, very important announcement, there will not be an episode of the podcast next week. I'm giving myself a week off. There's just so much happening in my life right now. <laughs> I just, I'm realizing I'm just not going to be able to get an episode out next week. Um, a lot of it is very exciting stuff, and I will fill you in on everything. We will be doing an episode uh, catching up on what's happening in my life with Andy Sometime in August, I think either two weeks or three weeks from now is when that episode will be coming out. Not 100% sure, but in the meantime, I do need to skip a week to take care of some stuff. My disability hearing is coming up and I need to have time to make sure I am prepared 
as well as some other exciting things that I'll fill you in about uh, later on this month. So next week's a great opportunity to catch up on episodes you have not yet listened to in our back catalog. So many amazing conversations about so many different chronic illnesses and disabilities in the catalog of the Major Pain Podcast. I'm so proud of what we've built here, and every single episode is worth listening to. Speaking of, let's check in with what people are saying about our recent episodes. Two weeks ago, we spoke with Angela Brown about her amazing chronic illness story, including her doctor that at one point mistakenly pronounced her dead. Over on Instagram, our friend Some Things Matter comments, she is incredible. Even before she started speaking of her illnesses, I was blown away by her. An amazing attitude and amazing resilience. And over on TikTok, our friend Caitlin comments, this podcast was incredible in so many ways, both the bad and the inspiring. Last week, we spoke with Christine about her mystery chronic illness. Chris Coates comments, Christine, so much of this I can relate to. Has anyone on your team looked at ankylosing spondylitis? I have all the symptoms, but none of the biomarkers. Christine replies, thank you for reaching out. My doctor and I discussed the possibility of AS and will likely retouch on it next week. It took us until this last year to even start looking at my low back extensively, hoping I can get some more testing done and can come back to the podcast to share updates later in the year. And Christine, absolutely, you're always welcome to come back and give us an update. Fingers crossed that you make some diagnostic progress soon. Olga Bolga 24 also comments, it was great to hear your story. I can relate to the right-sided pain. All on the hip and rib on the right side. I'm also exploring Ehlers-Danlos with my naturopath. I hope you find relief and recovery. Keep us posted on any insights and findings along the way. If you'd like to share your thoughts on episodes of this podcast, following us on social media is a great way to do so. You can find us on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube at Major Pain Podcast. And you can also leave a comment on every episode of the podcast on our website, MajorPainPodcast.com. If you have a diagnosis of any kind and you are interested in participating in research studies and surveys and getting paid for your time while supporting this podcast, check out Rare Patient Voice. Head to rarepatientvoice.com slash majorpainpodcast to sign up, and you'll be contacted if there's a research study or survey that fits your diagnosis. Caregivers are also welcome to sign up, and your diagnosis does not need to be rare. It can be any sort of diagnosis. If you're selected to participate in a research study or survey, you'll be paid an average of $120 per hour for your time. Special thank you to whoever it was who signed up this week. I always appreciate it. Whenever someone signs up, I get a $10 gift card for Amazon, which helps me to pay for my supplements, which I very much appreciate. And of course, another great way to support the podcast is through Patreon. Our Patreon campaign features three paid tiers of support, the $2 per month supporter, $7 per month patron, and $25 per month producer. Each tier comes with different levels of recognition on the podcast and gifts, including major pain coasters and tote bags, and every paid subscriber gains access to our monthly bonus podcast, where I sit down with my partner Andy, and they are always super, super fun. I think we have over 20 episodes now of the bonus podcast, so our new patrons will have a lot to catch up on. Patreon also now offers a free subscription tier if you'd like to just follow along on our public posts leave comments on our weekly episodes, and be a part of our growing community on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast. Your support is so, so appreciated. Extra special thank you to our Patreon producers supporting this show at the highest tier of $25 per month, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Before we jump into our amazing conversation with Rohan today, I will remind you that I am not a medical professional. Nothing on this podcast is intended as medical advice, and please do not take any medical action based off what you hear on this podcast without first consulting your doctor. 
And with that, we'll jump into our conversation with Rohan about recovering from long COVID. Rohan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you today. Uh, You reached out with a really interesting story, so I'm really excited to get into that. But before we do, let's get to know you a little bit. Why don't you tell us about yourself? Sure. So I used to be a neuroscientist. I was studying meditation mostly and the brain. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, we looked at long-term meditators, people that had all just started meditation for the first time. We're scanning them in these big magnets. And uh, that's, that's my original background. And then since then, I've started companies that help people learn how to meditate, slow down, improve their mental health. Oh, fascinating. Okay, so what did you learn from this research? What What are the generalities of studying meditation? How does it affect the brain? Yeah, I mean, there's a million ways to answer that question. But I think the simplest thing that I gleaned out of all these years is really the power of your breath. Mm-hmm. Really paying attention to how you breathe can change your emotional state a lot. Fascinating. Can you give us like the 30-second rundown of maybe one specific way that is effective to control your breath to maybe affect your uh, emotional state? Yeah. So one of the things we teach people is something called a downtime breath. And that is basically uh, a way of breathing that amplifies your heart rate rhythm. Hmm. So a lot of people don't realize this, but it turns out that when you are relaxed, your breathing actually synchronizes with your heart rate. So when you breathe in, your heart rate starts to go up. And when you breathe out, it starts to go down. Mm. It makes this beautiful wave pattern. So as you're breathing in and out, your heart rate's kind of like oscillating up and down. And so um, one of the things that we teach people uh, with this product I work on now called LEAF and just in general with breathing practices is if you take a little bit of a shorter inhale, shorter, sharper inhale, hold, you wait for your heart rate to start to decelerate. But if you don't have a sensor to tell you that, you can just kind of wait until it feels like it's about time and then you take a long slow exhale and so that shorter inhale hold and then a long slow exhale tends to elicit a parasympathetic response and it can calm you down so it's a trick to try oh fascinating that what a great answer so that's something you can kind of you know take a moment stop try this breathing exercise and see if it will kind of affect your emotional state and bring on a sense of calm try it helps wow so interesting so i know that uh you then experience some health challenges and then all of this sort of interweaves into where your life has gone since then. So I'm really fascinated to to hear about this. Uh, So Rohan, what is your major pain? Yeah. So in March of 2020, I got COVID from my partner at the time. And, um, and that was kind of the beginning of this chronic health journey, which uh, a lot of us have gone through and I was kind of uh, rudely shoved into it and uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> sometimes happens. And so, yeah, yeah, I, I was initially not very sick. I think like four weeks after my initial infection had a stroke at what's called a TIA. So oh, um, wow. maybe, stroke, maybe sounds more a baby more, stroke. Um, <laughs> that's a cute <laughs> word for it. But uh, but yeah. And then and then it was just kind of um, this long progressive period of, you know, mental health symptoms, brain fog, um, physical symptoms that were, you know, making life kind of progressively harder to, to live with. And so that that's, I guess, my major pain, I think, long COVID. 
that sounds horrible. I've I haven't heard of this before. I haven't talked to someone who had a a stroke following COVID. Were your doctors able to sort of connect the dots between those two things? Yeah, I mean, it turns out that I guess what's one of the things that COVID does, it can create little micro clots in your blood. And so young people sometimes will have, you know, I was a pretty healthy young person and I wasn't expecting to have a stroke, but it, it can happen, you know. Yeah, terrifying. Wow. And March 2020, right at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, obviously way well before there was any vaccine or anything like that available when uh, you know, it, I've, I've talked to a few people who got sick at that time. It seems like uh, long COVID was highly prevalent at that time, uh, you know, when no one had any immunity to this virus. Yeah. And it makes me wonder in the years since, I mean, since the pandemic started, we found out connections between Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and, you know, bacterial yeah. and infections. So, mm. you know, it, it makes me wonder if maybe this isn't such a new story after all. I think it may be happening to a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something else I've wondered about as well. Talking to people with, you know, myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, how long has this sort of post-viral illness been making people mysteriously ill and doctors just haven't put the pieces together because it was so many disparate things happening to so many disparate people that it's just really difficult to to make those connections. And also so many people being medically gaslit and not believed when they go in talking about symptoms. And now it's just happening to so many people at once with this one disease that it makes it a little easier to connect those dots and I really hope that that will bring some positive change for the entire post-viral illness community. Absolutely. I've been working with a nonprofit actually called the Long COVID Trial Initiative. And one of the things that we're trying to do is get clinical trials started for, for people with long COVID looking at basically, you know, is there pathogen kind of still hanging around and, um, and can it be treated with antivirals? And it, it brings up this whole question of, you know, with these other post-viral and some of these other syndromes, there may be uh, there may be a pathogen component to it, and if that's the case, that might actually be an opening for us to to start to treat ourselves by looking at the drugs that we use for acute viral and bacterial illnesses. You know, yeah, fascinating. I mean, I really I have my fingers crossed for that. Knock on wood. There's so many people that that this would help. Okay, so your your initial COVID infection wasn't super severe. But then you suddenly have a stroke. <laughs> Was it just like out of nowhere? Did you feel anything coming or all of a sudden you're, you know, rushing to the emergency room? How, how did that play out? It's such a crazy situation. So, you know, it's it was Friday night. Um, I was working, which <laughs> I have a startup. So I love to, and, you know, a small business. I, I, I care. I'm super passionate about what I do. So I'm, you know, I'm working all, a lot and it was Friday night. Instead of having fun, I was in the lab packaging up devices, shipping them out. <laughs> and uh, I just noticed my hand started to kind of feel a little weird. And and I couldn't quite type as fast as I was before. And then my vision started to get a little funky. And I called a friend of mine who uh, is a really good friend of mine from college. He ended up becoming a neurologist. And, you know, so I FaceTimed him and I was like, hey, man, I think I'm having a stroke. And he was like, yeah, man, I think you're having a stroke. So, <laughs> so I called. Uh, I called the ER and, uh, or yeah, I called the emergency uh, line, and they sent an ambulance out. And this was right at the beginning of the pandemic, and so people were pretty scared, and there was like a lot of a lot of fear, especially you know even with the emergency workers, and and they were sort of like, hey, I don't, I, you seem too young to have a stroke. You should be fine. Like you don't want to go to the hospital right now. <laughs> It was this, this whole back and forth where I was trying to convince like five or six dudes to 
put me in the ambulance to take me to the hospital. Eventually, I was like, you know what? It's fine. You guys just go. I'll be fine. And then I ended up driving myself to the hospital. Wow. Um, and uh, I mean, those were those were really early days where there was a lot of unknowns and fear and stuff. So I get it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, did a CT scan, uh, ended up not seeing any major bleeding. And they basically just kind of gave me some aspirin and told me to like call them if anything happened. And that was, that was the, that was my experience with a, with a TIA with a little stroke, um, went home and then me and my dog, we were living in Berkeley, California at the time. We just kind of hunkered down and the next nine months or a year were sort of a blur of not being able to use my brain like I used to. And mm. I love starting companies and stuff. That's, you know, I'm an inventor and I love to make new products and I had to, stop a lot of that and sell sell things i was working on and so anyway that was that was kind of the story wow so you you essentially had no treatment for the stroke just besides take some aspirin and it sounds like it was a small enough stroke that it was able to sort of resolve itself with just aspirin and you were able to then move into having long covid <laughs> that's silver lining <laughs> <laughs> um that sounds horrifying thinking back to those early days going to the hospital was such a calculated risk because there was so much COVID everywhere. You were, it, you were just recovering from COVID um, and, you know, getting it again is probably something you don't want to do when it's so poorly understood at that point. It's just amazing how far we've come in three years with this thing. You know, a lot of people feeling like it's over, like the pandemic is over, which is absolutely not true. It's just, we've really sort of learned to live inside of a, ongoing pandemic <laughs> i completely agree and it feels like you know the missing piece to that is well we have vaccines which have been like somewhat effective and and now i think we need we need more than that it, you know mm -hmm. I, I think there's ongoing health issues that are being caused by having this much this much virus kind of floating around and and yeah, I mean, we, I've seen this even in our in our work with with Leaf, which is a company I run, where we have this little uh, wearable patch and a little sensor that measures your heart rate, teaches you to breathe, you biofeedback, and um, and what's interesting about some of the customers and the patients we've seen coming in the door since the pandemic started in 2020 is a lot more POTS, a lot more dysautonomia, yeah, a lot of these symptoms, right? Yeah, that that are related to. I think in part viral infection. And so we got to start addressing those root causes, I think, to some degree. Yeah, totally. And, and doctors often treat what is right in front of them without looking at the root cause. So, you know, if you come in with a presentation of POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, just getting the testing for it will likely take six months to a year, the tilt table test, uh, which I have done actually. I did a full dysautonomia panel and it took months and months and months to get in and months and months and months to convince a doctor to even let me do that. Just getting the testing is so hard, but if you get to that point and you're diagnosed with it, then they'll just start telling you, okay, this is how you live with it. Uh, you know, up your salt intake, uh, have a lot of electrolytes, that sort of stuff. But very unlikely that anyone will have the time or even the knowledge of how to look into why, you know, why do you have POTS? And it's oftentimes just, we have no idea. Or it's like a, some sort of post-viral issue, and that's the end of the story. But if it's a post-viral issue, if we know why it was caused, there's still nothing we can really do about it. So, um, yeah, it's it's a really frustrating situation to be in, to have any sort of dysautonomia. 
I know, and this is such a similar experience to so many people who have chronic illnesses, you know, you're going from one doctor to another. And typically, I mean, this is the thing with medicine, right? Like, my parents are physicians, I have a ton of empathy for for healthcare workers. And I, I get like the way that the system is set up where everything's very compartmentalized, and you sort of are, you're healing people, but you're also running a business. And it's like, how do you mm are really incompatible to, at some fundamental <laughs> so they're kind of being put in this impossible situation and then you know you have a playbook as a doctor you go to med school and they teach you here are the symptoms here's what you do and you know you're, you're kind of you're not typically at the bleeding edge of research which can take you know 10 15 20 years to actually work its way from some scientists in a lab saying oh hey POTS is caused by a viral infection of autonomic nerves right like just for example let's say that that's the case it might take decades before people are actually treating that when you go in to see your doctor and you, you know, you complain of having, you know, rapidly rapid heart rate or, you know, feeling, feeling uh, dizzy when you stand up. So, so that's like the, the fundamental challenge. And I think the thing that makes me feel hopeful, which is what you mentioned earlier, is that there's so many people because of, I think the pandemic that have gotten ill so quickly that it's accelerating research in the space. Yeah. I I'm nodding emphatically over here as you're speaking. <laughs> Um, so when you had your stroke, you said they did the, the CT scan, were they able to see evidence of the stroke in your brain and just say, okay, but the bleeding is not severe enough to need to do any, you know, sort of intervention. Yeah. And I still have like a little, I got a brain scan done recently and I still have like a little white matter hypo intensities and stuff, but I'm, mm. I'm much better. I mean, it could have been way worse. Yeah. Scary. Yeah. But I think it, you know, you, you've talked to so many people who have, have, been right at that edge and you know you're rolling the dice you're, um so you never really know kind of how it's going to turn out but yeah yeah i've gotten a lot better over time and part of that has been <laughs> uh well who knows what it, what it really is but i think a mix of meditation mindfulness doing biofeedback um some experimental medical treatments you know all kinds Ooh. of stuff yeah stuff i want to ask you about for sure um and yeah you know I, I just, I haven't released this interview yet, but I just, by the time this podcast comes out, it will be out. I just spoke to someone whose doctor pronounced them dead, <laughs> which is the first time I'd heard that. The doc, like, they, they went to talk to a nurse and like, oh, you're not in our system. Uh, it's because you're, you're dead in our system. <laughs> so yeah, right up to the edge. Um, <laughs> I still can't stop Hopefully thinking about that. Good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. So. Were, were there like lingering symptoms of the stroke or is it hard to say because you dived so headfirst into long COVID that there were so many symptoms of that, that it's hard to say what was what at that point? I think there was overlap. Yeah. But I yeah. mean, I, I'd always been kind of like a very go, go, go person trying to fill up my time, but my brain stopped working. So I got, a, I mean, I got a Netflix account. I watched Game of Thrones. Like I missed <laughs> a bunch of stuff from like the last few, last decade or two, actually. Um, so, you know, just tried to just tried to stay in in as good health as I could. I had this huge, you know, drawer full of supplements, experimenting with that, as a lot of us do, trying to figure out if I can give myself the magic, the magic combination. And of course, that's always a tough, a tough order. So just sort of tried to heal and 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 take it slow. And and that was that was where I was until um basically halfway through 2022. Yeah. So just a couple of years of being on the couch. I, I totally relate to this. I've been there as well, you know? Uh, and there's like, there's a part of me that's like, okay, well, I have, I can't do anything right now. So I'm just going to really dive into relaxing and, you know, I'll watch all the way through Stargate SG-1. 
<laughs> and then Stargate Atlantis and then Stargate Universe. You know, I had a long time to, to, to do this. And that was just the first time in my, in my 20s. This happened again in my 30s for six years. And, you know, I got so sick of, of binge watching TV. It's like, I just want to do anything other than relax right now. Um, but what about your emotional state during that period? Was it just you at home with your dog? I mean, you're in the midst of the pandemic when no one can really come over and see you anyway. But then you're also dealing with this horrific health challenge. How did you get through that emotionally? Yeah, it was a pretty dark time. Um, so, yeah, I mentioned I, I was seeing someone at the time. Um, right, right. He got sick, and I got sick, um, had the stroke, we broke up, and then it was really just me in my apartment with my dog, um, who's great company, but doesn't he's not a big talker, but it's like... <laughs> we were just we were just i mean it was in, in lockdown you know we yeah. were we were all sort of um yeah in, in quarantine so that was a tough time i'm lucky that you know my family was really supportive you know as much as i could talk about it with other people i tried to but it, even then i think there was maybe shame's not the right word but i think the experience of of having a chronic illness is so foreign especially when you're on the younger side of you know lifespan that maybe your peer group doesn't fully understand or know how to relate to you. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, sometimes you don't bring things up and that create more isolation. And I, I definitely was guilty of creating that kind of negative feedback loop. Yeah. Th this is something I've spent so much time thinking about, you know, how much of it is other people's discomfort preventing me from bringing it up or me feeling like people don't want to hear about it and how much of it is just me projecting and hiding it because I'm ashamed of it. And thinking that other people are uncomfortable when perhaps maybe they're thinking about something completely different. Uh, and that's something that I've really wrestled with, where I used to think like, oh, I'm so sick, no one wants to talk to me about it. And I learned later, it's like, I wasn't able to talk about it. So people didn't know what I was going through, because I was so sick that I, I couldn't even process well enough to describe it to someone. It's a real mix of these things coming together that create the experience of extreme isolation. And that's something I've learned a lot about since starting this podcast and recognizing that sometimes, you know, sharing and like pushing yourself to, to be open about something that we're sort of societally trained not to talk about, which is poor health, can be really empowering and, you know, give you a, a sense of belonging because you can find other people who are experiencing something similar. But it's so hard to, to it took me years, years to learn that years and years and years. <laughs> I, I hid it away for so long. That's such a beautiful lesson. And, you know, I, <laughs> I did not know it uh, at all to, to start with. And, um, and yeah, well, I did have time. And as my, as my brain started to kind of come back, I just dove into a lot of the research actually, because I used mm -hmm. to be a scientist. So I started kind of like obsessively learning everything I could about what I assumed had happened to me, which was, you know, a COVID infection and, and, and the after effects of that. And so that ended up being, the thing that helped me the most in the end, because, you know, it stumbled on some theories of why long COVID was happening and used those to develop some experimental treatments, found some doctors who were willing to give it to me and, and they did. And it, it changed everything actually. So it, it really helped me a lot. Oh, super interesting. Um, I'd love to hear some, some details about that, whatever you're comfortable sharing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, um, one of the things that started right from the beginning of the pandemic, and we see this with Lyme, we see this with with a variety of other post-viral infections where it's, it's possible that there is 
still a bug lying around in your body somewhere, in a viral reservoir and maybe it's you know it can go into reproductive system organs or your brain where there's kind of this immune system barrier where your immune system can't reach very easily and they can settle in other organs and so that was that was a major theory of what's driving long COVID. and i think the nih published this um really really great study it was a study of autopsies actually um that they published in nature um initially the preprint was in 2021 and i read that and that showed basically that you know SARS-CoV-2 this virus was hanging around all throughout the body but especially the brain um for like at least eight months after the initial infection and that was like a light bulb went off like i mean holy shit! if this is just the virus still in me then why don't i try to use some of these drugs that are used when you have an acute viral infection right um and so at the time that was now like early 2022 um, packs of it had come out. And so I experimented with that. Um, you know, doctors wrote me a prescription and I was able to try Paxlovid, which is, as some of your listeners might know, you know, a drug for acute COVID infection, right? You'll take it at the beginning of an infection and, and it sort of slows down viral replication. Yeah. Uh, that helped while I was on it. And then my symptoms kind of came back afterwards. That's a pretty common. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that my, my partner, Andy, took Paxlovid when she got COVID the first time, uh, almost exactly a year ago. We were in Tahoe on, on our, uh, her, her family does a yearly trip that I've been lucky enough to go on for, you know, since we've been together. And she got COVID while we were there and got Paxlovid. And she just had a ridiculously horrible illness. <laughs> she was so, so sick. Um, and then she took Paxlovid and it started to get better. But then she went off because, you know, they gave her a week's worth and it came right back, testing positive again not as sick with the rebound, but she ended up taking it again for another week. Um, and I, I've heard so many stories of Paxlovid rebound. It seems like it's really helpful. It's, it's slowing the virus if you can catch it right away. Uh, but then it seems like, you know, the the week that they give people often isn't enough uh, and the, the virus comes right back. So that's, that's, I've never heard of anyone trying it for long COVID. I've never heard of anyone trying it years after an infection. So it's really interesting that you had that similar experience years later um, but okay. So what else did you try? Yeah. I mean, well, you know, similar, similar kind of thing. It's like, well, if it came back, you know, um, try a longer course. Mm. So try 10 days, similar, similar experience. And now actually there's, I know that like Stanford, for example, is doing a long COVID trial with longer period of Paxlovid and people are looking at that now. But I think the fundamental thing with Paxlovid is like, well, it's a, replication inhibitor you know it just sort of like well, however much virus is in you at the time it just kind of makes it harder for it to copy itself so it stays at whatever level it is more or less but as soon as you remove the pressure of this drug that's stopping it from multiplying all of the virus is still in your body it just starts replicating again and so you know yeah. it's a rebound you know yeah. it's kind of logical it's not it's not crazy crazy insights or anything but it made me wonder like well what if you combine this with something that actually went after the virus itself in some way. Mm. So that was where, you know, one of the things that I'd been tracking since I got sick in 2020 was my blood cell count. And, um, and what we saw there was that over time I was, you know, starting to have lower and lower levels of certain types of white blood cells, not to the point of having technical aids yet, but it got pretty close. And so, wow. So I was technically immunocompromised. Um, and so that allowed me to get access to this drug called Evusheld, 
which is a monoclonal antibody that um, was initially designed as like a prophylaxis for for getting COVID, especially if you have heart immune compromised. But just in general, they give you this shot in your in your butt, and you know it basically is a shot full of antibodies from somebody who got sick from COVID and got better, and they took all their antibodies and made you know thousands and millions of copies of it. And it's designed to stay in your blood for you know months, like three months, four months, five months, that kind of thing. And so I combine that with the packs of it at the same time. And that's a lesson from HIV, actually, where typically you want to try multiple types of drugs at the same time in combination to try to, you know, reduce um, level of virus and then hopefully symptoms. And and um, lo and behold, like, so I started on packs of it. I got that first shot of Evusheld. And by that, by that night, I mean, almost all of my symptoms started melting away and reversing. And I remember writing in my journal that, you know, just being so grateful because it, it was like a, almost like a light switch went off and, and that, yeah. So that was kind of, that was kind of the first experience I had. And then I did a couple more treatments of that. And it's been almost a year now of, of um, not really having any of those, any of those symptoms that I struggled with. Wow. This, this is, mind-blowing this is amazing um and of course you know this is one person this is not medical advice this is one person's experience but i i really appreciate you sharing it because anything helping for anyone it, that's sort of my barometer for the podcast has anything helped one person because then it's worth sharing because if it helps a second person you know each human is so valuable like each person it's an, an entire life and if one thing can help one person it's it's so worthwhile to get out in the world. So, uh, but there, it sounds like there's some huge barriers to entry here. Finding a doctor willing to do this sounds really really difficult because it sounds like you had to go on Paxlovid multiple times um, to do this. On top of getting this other antibody medication, what was this, what was that called? Evusheld. Evusheld. Yeah. Evusheld. Okay. How were you able to convince your doctor to prescribe that? Was it just you found the right doctor who's willing to kind of go along this journey with you? Yeah, and I think that's the experience so many people have trying to figure themselves out for these conditions that don't have good treatments yet, you know, and I was able to find someone who basically listened to me finally after a lot of like searching and um, yeah, they were willing to try it. And, and then when it helped, you know, they were willing to continue. So it, it's so hard to find that person, but I it just encouraged people even it's so hard when you're sick to on top of that, try to navigate the healthcare system and, <laughs> and you know, like find <laughs> interview doctors, you know, like, um, it's, it's, it's not, it's not easy to do. And, and, um, but I was, I was lucky to find somebody. Yeah. That's really incredible. And it sounds like you've had lasting results, which is also incredible. How many times did you have to redo this cocktail? Yeah. So the first time I did it, basically I did like 10 days of Paxlovid with the shot of the monoclonal antibodies right in the middle. And Evusheld is designed, like I mentioned, to be a long-lasting antibody, so it, it should last in your blood. Like Usually they measure blood um, drugs in terms of half-life, so like how long before half the drug is out of you. And so Evusheld's half-life is like 81 days, so it's like almost three months, basically. And then what I noticed, so the first treatment, I felt amazing for the first time in years, uh, and that lasted like 10 days. And then some of the symptoms started to come back a little bit, but not anywhere close to where they were before. 
And so then a month later, I did another treatment. After that, I did an, a third. So I did three in total, which if you think about a drug that has a really long half-life, what's what you're doing is before the drug's even fully out of your system, you're giving yourself another dose. So I kind of had this massive dose of, you know, this antiviral, this these monoclonal antibodies in my body. And uh, after the second treatment, the my symptoms never came back and they, they still haven't. Wow. How long ago was that? That was almost exactly a year that I started. And tell me about your resiliency now. I mean, are you having like lingering heart rate issues or are you able to go back to exercise, go back to work? You know, what has it been like in this last year? I was so careful to, um, you know, based on the experience of some of the people in the long COVID community of having PEM, post-exertional malaise, right? Yeah. Where you try to push yourself too fast and you end up setting yourself back. And so I was really cautious to kind of work myself up um, to getting back into shape. I used to be like a, a young, pretty healthy person, you know, exercise, stuff like that, and it all stopped. And so I, what's been incredible is I, I'm able to exercise, I can run, I'm getting stronger every day. I, uh, you know, I'm building endurance again. I feel like I, I'm restarting in some ways, you know, not to say that maybe, maybe there's still, if this is in fact, what was causing the issue, some lingering virus around somewhere. Um, it could be the case that there's still some disease process happening, but it's way better than it was before. And so I'm just super grateful for that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's incredible. I'm so excited to hear that. What are the dangers of this experimental cocktail of medication? What are the side effects that are or potential things that you need to be aware of? Yeah, I mean, there's there's so many things that you need to be aware of and cautionary tales, and you shouldn't do anything without talking to your doctor. Like you said, this is not medical advice, but it, I do think it's important as well to share. So this is what I went through, the, the thought process I went through. I don't know if this helps other people. I'll just share um, you know, how I was thinking about it, which was basically, look, um, if the hypothesis that, that long COVID is virus sticking around is correct, and it seems like it's not leaving, then there's probably a progressive element to this where over time there may be more damage. And so acting sooner is better than acting later. That's one principle that I was trying to, that I used to guide myself. And then the second one is, you know, what are the clinical trials and the sample sizes of people that have actually used some of the drugs in this cocktail I tried and mechanistically, what should you expect, right? What should, for example, drug-drug interactions be between these two things? Um, you know, what are the side effects of like Paxlovid, for example, is, can be kind of harsh on your body. You know, I don't think you would want to be on Paxlovid for like a year or two necessarily. Yeah. So those are all things that I took into account. And, and again, this is not medical advice from, from my perspective, monoclonal antibodies are, are pretty, pretty safe medication relative to other types of medication. Cause it's really just human. It's just clones of actual human anti antibodies. You know, it's like, it's, it's us. It's basically, you know, genetically human, um, antiviral molecules that you're just giving yourself a bunch of them at the, at the same time. And then with Paxvid, I just made sure that I wasn't taking other types of medication that would have some kind of interaction. And then I rolled the dice, basically. And you you won. <laughs> yeah, it's a blackjack. That's the wrong game. It's uh, Snake Eyes. What is it? I don't know. I don't gamble. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and I don't know how generalizable that is to other people, but it feels like you know, coming back to the point you made initially, which is there's so many people that have had these chronic illnesses now, 
we've got to share this information. We've got to start doing it more regularly in clinical trials and, and really get the data to know for sure, here's the benefit, here's the risk. And then you can start to make informed decisions, you know? So, okay, you're, you're an inventor. You've had this experience. You, you're, you start companies, you make products, and then you've had this experience where you got long COVID, you did some research, you found something that you tried that has worked for you. What's the next step? Because if I were you, I'd be, you know, really wanting to get this out there, but wanting to do that in a way where, you know, start like a clinical trial or something, um, get someone else looking into this combo of medications. Is there something next that you're looking into trying? Yeah. I mean, I think the first thing that I wanted to do is make sure that this wasn't false, like a false dawn or false hope for people. So, I mean, it's been almost a year since I started these treatments and I feel like that's a, a good amount of time. I, I haven't had a relapse and I think that's meaningful, at least for me personally. So that was one thing. I think just not not jumping too soon because oftentimes with chronic illnesses, things come and they go and sometimes you're feeling worse and sometimes you're feeling better and like that's just normal. So true. So true. Now I'm at this stage where I've, through friends of friends, been connected to some groups that are working on actually creating trials, clinical trials for long COVID. And so I mentioned the Long COVID Trial Initiative, which is this amazing nonprofit that's run by a lot of a bunch of patients who have struggled with long COVID themselves and are trying to figure out solutions. And one of the operating hypotheses with this group is that long COVID is actually a persistent infection. And treating it with acute antivirals, you know, kind of like I did, is the best bet we have to start to clear people's symptoms. And so that's what I am, you know, helping support now, um, along with this great team that's working on it. And and so the next goals I think there are basically finding funding to to run clinical trials, looking at combinations of different drugs that might be helpful to clear what could be a persistent infection. Wow. So you're, you're actively going after this. You're trying to go through the proper channels and find a way to get this out in the world. If it, if it works for other people as well. Yeah. And that's the whole point of the clinical trial. You know, first you want to make sure these are safe medications. And a lot of what we're talking about have already been tested and, you know, for example, approved by FDA, they're used for other conditions or they're used for COVID. Um, and, you know, I think typically, you know, with clinical trials, you, first want to focus on safety, then you want to think about what is the right dose. And then you really look at, you know, a larger trial and you try to figure out what the effect is. So what percentage of people are going to respond to this? Is it 10%? Is it 90%? You know, or, or somewhere in between. And so that's kind of, that's kind of the next step, but it feels like more and more people are having anecdotal experiences of trying antivirals and having some measure of relief, you know, just talking about long COVID here, but I think, I think we might be on the right track there. So yeah, yeah. And this is such a interesting place to be where there is the anecdotal evidence, but that is not scientific evidence, but it is something that points in the direction of where the scientific research should go. But as a patient, if you are suffering now and you want to do something now, you can't necessarily um, get there when there isn't a distinct scientific path. And like you said, you know, it can take 30 years sometimes for things to trickle down in medicine to the point where you can actually do the thing that has been researched for the last 30 years. You know, like my doctors are um, evaluating me for mast cell activation syndrome. I've been put on medication for that. My life has completely changed because of the medication. We, we don't have any diagnostic testing that says this is exactly what this is be, because the testing for mast cell is so, is not great. So there really isn't a great test for it right now. 
Um, but the anecdotal evidence is like, hey, this is helping. So I'm just going to keep doing it. But it's also a little infuriating to like to to talk to certain doctors who don't even believe that this is a real thing or who think that, oh, it's become like this fad diagnosis. And a lot of people, I, I had a doctor tell me a lot of people think they have mast cell activation syndrome. Um, but he did say, well, you actually might have it because of the way you're reacting to the medication. But still, like that sort of mindset in medicine of, you know, uh, of gatekeeping things that have not been tried and true. It's, it's that way for a reason. I get it because it's safer that way. But if you are the person who, who wants to try anything to get your life back, you're willing to take the risk like you did with these experimental med medications. Yeah. I mean, you touched on so many important things there. It, it, you know, not being believed by doctors. And I think this is a, this is a huge reason why we actually need a test, like a diagnostic test for a variety of these chronic health conditions. Just talking about long COVID, I mean, this is something that I think some people are working on now, because if you have virus floating around, you might be able to still measure it, even if it's, you know, in certain parts of your body where, you know, it might not be a ton of viral RNA in your blood, but you can, there might be ways to do that. And so having a diagnostic test is a huge, huge milestone that will help accelerate everything in any chronic health condition, because when you can measure it, then it's really hard to argue with that, right? Whereas oftentimes when you come to a doctor, they're we sort of put doctors on a pedestal here in, in you know in Western society to a degree, and and they sort of sometimes will feel the need to play the role of knowing all, having all the answers, you know. Um, and if you don't have all the answers, that can feel disconcerting and uncomfortable. And you know, some of the interactions that people have with their physicians, it may be dismissal, and it may also be the own phys the physician's own like discomfort with the unknown and not being able to help, and that kind of coming out as you know, oh, I don't believe you or feeling gruff. And like, uh, anyway, that, that, I'm psychologizing a little bit, but I, I think the point I'm trying to make is that people that are working on diagnostic tests, I think are super important. I know there was a recently a, a big long COVID trial that came out, which some people in the long COVID community weren't super happy about, but did look at symptoms in a large, large cohort of long COVID people. And eventually those can lead to at least symptomatic diagnostic tests where you can do a quiz or a questionnaire kind of thing. But once you get the actual data like from a biological perspective, I think that's going to change everything because you'll you'll be able to measure where people are at and what's working. Yeah. And I mean, hopefully there's people out there working on all these things because, yeah, it is crucial. Yeah. I mean, I I, I know that they are and it, these are early days still. But again, you know, for for people that have been struggling with and I have so many friends who have, you know, Lyme disease and and um it's been decades of, of dealing with symptoms. Right. And there just were never enough people, I think. And having this huge push of people, which is now, you know, more than a hundred million folks who have long COVID, it's just this, it's just this huge boon, I think, to everyone with a chronic health condition that maybe some of this research will actually push. Yeah. We, we might be at the beginning of a revolution of chronic illness. We might be on the front lines of it and not realize it. And it, this horrific thing that we've all lived through, this pandemic, could be the turning point towards you know, this like utopian chronic illness future. Who knows? <laughs> I watched a lot of Star Trek, so I, I always think along those lines. <laughs> I'm an optimist too. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And I feel like it's happening. You know, I think it's happening. And and um, yeah, so this is something that I, I in the my darkest point of despair, which is probably like last year, 2022, the middle of 2022, before I started these treatments, I was really, really depressed because the feeling you have with the chronic health condition is like, I'm never going to get better. Like there's nothing I can do, and that and that uh, that feeling of like 
of finality with health like it does happen we're all gonna die that's you know it like there are some there is some truth to that from a from a certain perspective but i think it can give people hope i think to know that there are folks working on treatments cures diagnostic tests and they're making progress and to hold on you know a little bit longer for those of us who are who are having a tough time i love that i i wholeheartedly believe that as well you're really reminding me of a episode I did a while back with Simon about chronic fatigue syndrome, where he did a ton of research, you know, on Reddit and places like that, you know, not all of us are have a science science background where we can do the type of research that you've done, which is incredible. Um, but you know, the type of research we can do is, you know, going on message boards and, and talking to other people with similar conditions. And he found something online called um, LDN, low-dose naltrexone, that he tried, and he's now in complete remission from chronic fatigue syndrome. It's the only other time in the history of this podcast that I've talked to someone who has done something experimental that has worked for them. Uh, and I'm just, just because you're reminding me of that story, are you familiar with LDN? Is this something that you've heard about? Yeah, this is one of the one of the many antiviral treatments that people are looking at now for for clinical trials. Okay. That's exciting. <laughs> it is exciting. It is exciting because I think the the silver lining is I mean I, I'm not sure what his experience was like, but if you get the right dosage over the right amount of time, I and mean, theoretically you could you could kind of have a reversal of a lot of your symptoms potentially. So Yeah, yeah, and I just got a comment from from a pharmacist tech about LDN talking about the pathway that it works through about how it kind of encourages your body to compensate for something. And I already forgot. I, I read it on the podcast a while back, so <laughs> it's out there. But um, yeah, it's re really fascinating. And okay, and this is a really self-serving question, but I've also been seeing a lot of information about mast cell activation syndrome, MCAS, um, in post-COVID situations. My doctors think that I have idiopathic MCAS and that I've had it my whole life because I've had really bizarre reactions to mold since I was in second grade. And every time I'm exposed to mold, I get super, super, super sick. And then it just started started happening without mold. But that's been like the, the through line for me. Uh, and then once it started happening without mold, it's like we can't get it to stop. And that was, you know, six years of being super sick, having no idea why after, you know, this lifetime of already being sick on and off. Um, and now I'm on, you know, mast cell stabilizing medications. It's hugely beneficial. Um, are you seeing anything in the research about a link between post-viral illness um, long, long COVID, MCAS, anything along those lines? I'm not an expert in this space, but I think that that is one of the things that people are trying and seeing some benefit from. So you mentioned antihistamine diet. Mm -hmm. well, that's helping people. You know, um, one of the first things that I tried that actually helped me a little bit was Benadryl. And that has a ton of extra side effects, but it's, a, it's an antihistamine as well. I mean, I think that there are there's definitely some kind of connection happening there. I just don't know what exactly it is. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. I, it's just making me think about it. Cause if you think about the causality of, of mast cell activation, like why are people's mast cells going haywire uh, and releasing all these mediators in your bloodstream and kind of building to toxic levels? Um, why is that happening? That's something that, that no one can say at this point, you know, and that's really frustrating because I keep, you know, having these frustrated moments of like, I'm so sick of eating this low histamine diet. I'm so sick of taking so much medication every day, but I'm also like, I'm six months into doing all this and I'm so much better. So I'm, I'm not going to stop. I'm so grateful. But, you know, these two things can coexist. You can be frustrated. Like, I just want to be able to, every once in a while, it'd be so nice to be able to like have a drink. I, I can't drink anything. Um, it'd be so nice to be able to have 
gluten to be able to you know to go to a restaurant and be able to not be the the weirdo ordering the the stupid thing you know <laughs> go to the thai restaurant and just get steamed vegetables and rice like i don't want to be that person but that's what's working so that's what's what i've got to do but i keep thinking like is there some level beyond this like is there something underneath it where if we can treat the thing underneath then the mast cell activation stops and it seems very likely that that could be the case or i mean with me in my history with mold maybe not you know this might just be this might be it this might be the top level diagnostically but you know i'm i'm this is something that i think about a lot like is there something else there and i don't know how to go about figuring that out i don't have the skills or the tools yeah i mean it's really hard to say and i think with long COVID, it's you know just as an analogy i think that that is that's a similar kind of reasoning that a lot of people are going through like one of the treatments that physicians out there particularly functional medicine doctors are giving to people who have long COVID and are coming to them saying hey i need help are things like triple therapy, which is like very focused on you know, giving you different types of anticoagulants, for example, that'll stop your blood from kind of like clumping up and clotting up. That is probably a downstream effect. If we're assuming that, you know, long COVID is persistent virus, your blood getting a little clotted is like, is like a downstream effect of that. But what you really want to do is get rid of the virus. You don't want to necessarily just try to artificially make it difficult for your blood to clot. Like that could help in the short term. It could reduce a lot of symptoms, like maybe you're not getting enough blood flow to your fingertips and your brain and up different parts of your body, but you want to choose the root cause. And the root cause is persistent virus. And so if you want to, it's kind of like, um, you know, what was that the real quote? Like for every person that's uh, hacking at the limbs of evil, there's like only one hacking at the root or side. I'm butchering it, but. Um, oh, I love that. <laughs> idea, you know? And so if there, if there is a persistent pathogen and, you know, I think that that may be much more common than we realize and long COVID may have just uncovered it rather than, you know, being that unique. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, so interesting. I want to know. I want to know. Let's, let's, you know, <laughs> I, I want the research to be over so we can find out, but it's a, it's a long process. If chronic illness teaches you anything, it's to cultivate patience, which is something you touched on a while back and reminds me, I'd love to talk a little bit more about your work with meditation and biofeedback. When you first reached out, you mentioned, uh, I think HRV, HRV biofeedback, is that correct? Mm -hmm. Tell us what that is to begin with. And then when does all this sort of interweave itself into your story? Yeah, yeah. So HRV, for people who aren't familiar with that acronym, is it's heart rate variability. It's kind of like, you know, the natural variations of your heart rate. It's usually bouncing up and down. It's never, it's never steady. It's always got some healthy variation in it. And that's actually a very good thing. And so heart rate variability is kind of this measurement of stress, mental health, um, if you improve it, you can have better cognition. Um, there are some links with immune system function. It's a it's a very fascinating and really underexplored area of science, but it all started with biofeedback experiments in the 60s and 70s with the hippies, actually, and, <laughs> and the counterculture movement, um, psychedelic movement. And, um, and that was part of why I think biofeedback as a technology kind of when there was this big swing of the pendulum against a lot of that culturally, biofeedback sort of went into the dustbin of history to a degree. And it's only now in the last 10 years coming back, biofeedback, the earliest experiments were teaching people to like consciously control the temperature of their fingertip with their mind, like up or down, you know, almost like superpower type of stuff where it turns out, you know, if you have a really accurate sensor measuring something about what's known as your autonomic nervous system, the nervous system, not of the nerves in your brain, but of your body that extend out throughout your body and control your heart beating, your palm sweating, all of that stuff, right? If you 
give your brain a signal. Let's say I'm looking at a digital thermometer at my heart, or rather my fingertip temperature, and it's going up and down in small fractions of a degree. It's really accurate and it's real time. So it has to be those two things. It has to be accurate signal of your body, biosignal of your body, and it has to be in real time. You can learn how to control that consciously. Wow. Just by trying to move it with your mind, if you try it long enough, it, it happens. You know, we did a clinical trial of eight weeks showing people could learn to control their heart rate, which is what we really focus on with this tool called the leaf. And yeah, essentially what we do is instead of measuring your fingertip temperature, we are measuring a signal of your mental health and your general health, really, you know, resilience to stress, et cetera, heart rate variability when it gets really low, um, We've got this little sensor you can kind of see it's this yeah then patch really wear it under your clothes it's a it's an ekg it's a heart rate monitor um but it's got these little vibration motors in it so it knows when your biomarker gets low when your hra is low it turns on starts to vibrate and what we teach people to do is basically learn to interpret that vibration which is mirroring their heart rate back to them and we teach you over like eight weeks to kind of like learn how to control it and and that can lead to better mental health. And that's kind of like the science behind HRV biofeedback. The connection with long COVID is we've been talking a lot about persistent virus. And if that is in fact the root cause, then what you need are antivirals. But I think what can be helpful in the short term, well, at least what was helpful for me is using breathing to basically feel better in the moment. So you can use, for example, HRV biofeedback to reduce stress in general. Um, and there may be some immune effects that happen as a part of that as well. And what we found with our patients as well, who have POTS, who have dysautonomia, you can learn to use HRV as a signal for when you need to slow down, when you need to pace yourself, and also how to recover a little bit more, just basically through breathing, more or less. Yeah. Uh, you know what's so cool about this, just listening to you talk about this, is it, something that I think is so important is that for anyone with a chronic illness, when you are in this uh, fight or flight mode of like something is wrong in my body. I have to figure out what it is. You go to a doctor, they gaslight you. They don't believe you. Your stress level shoots through the roof and you get into this mode of like fight, you know, trying to battle against your doctors to try to get any movement to happen. And then they start to accuse you of creating your own illness based off of your anxiety level. And it's like, no, you are making me anxious. I had an illness. I came in here and now it is spiraling out of control. Uh, my anxiety spiraling out of control because of the way you're treating me. But they take that as a way to kind of cut off care. I see it all the time. It's happened to me. I see it over and over again with people that I interview. Um, so then for me, for a long time, I kind of pulled out of looking for an answer. And it was just like, okay, I'm shutting this off. I'm shutting this world off. I don't want to deal with it anymore. Um, this was probably around the time that I was misdiagnosed with fibromyalgia, where I sort of had a soft answer, where it's like, okay, well, now I'm going to focus on feeling better. And I'm going to focus on like, you know, what my doctor told me to do, which is like the um, light exercise every day, eat healthy, listen to my body, rest, all those things that help with everything, you know, they help with everything. And they're really important tools and skills to learn and to have. So I learned how to incorporate all those things. And then I started over again with a new hospital coming from this place of like, I've been living with this for years. I learned how to live with it in the best way that I can. And I learn how to manage my stress level, treat myself well, and listen to my body. And now we're going to go after a diagnosis again. But coming from the place of a sort of like measured acceptance that had been at first beaten into me, but then sort of learned and accepted and integrated. And that's when I actually started to make progress. 
And it really changed my opinion about the diagnostic process of, you know, I used to think it's one or the other. You're either going for a diagnosis or you're taking a break. And I've, I've learned that you kind of have to do it all at the same time. You have to go for a diagnosis from a place of calm while taking care of yourself, while doing all these other things to try to make your day-to-day life as, as um, comfortable and as happy and as productive as possible uh, w- within a chronic illness that is sort of wrecking your ability to do anything productive. Um, there is a best way through that. You know, I guess best way is the wrong word. There is a, a, a path of least resistance through something that is all resistance. You know, there's still a path of least resistance. And it took me so long to learn that lesson. But I, I feel like it's so important, like when you don't know what's going to work, to also be sort of taking care of these other things that, that could help, like your diet. Um, you know, if you have POTS, finding ways to sort of manage your heart rate is so important. And this HRV feedback sounds like a really cool way to sort of integrate that into a daily practice where it's like, yeah, we're not saying this is going to cure long COVID, but if you're having heart rate variability issues, here's a tool that I've created that can maybe help with that, that can get you through this. So you have a little bit more resiliency for those doctor's visits. Uh, and I think that's a really important tactic to integrate into the the big picture of dealing with chronic illness yeah it's a marathon it's not a sprint you know so you got to take care of yourself while you're going along the journey and hrv just as a diagnostic biomarker i mean people have apple watches or rings those all measure hrv to different degrees of accuracy and you can use it to help track your symptoms too and it, it maybe helps you even if your doctor's not going to necessarily put too much emphasis on data that you're showing them because they probably just frankly don't know what to really do with that it can still help you to track yourself in an objective way and yeah i have friends who have uh, chronic illnesses who have tracked hrv and um who i met actually because they first got one of these products and then reached out and we started talking and became friends and one of the things that i've learned is that heart rate variability as a biomarker because it sits right at the mind body axis it kind of acts as this really great dipstick for like a diagnostic tool for your, for your body, like how you're doing, you know, and then you can use that over time to see trends. If you're doing, you know, certain things to try to get better, you can also see if that has an effect. And, you know, there's ways that this can be helpful. I think, even if it's not going to cure you. Yeah. What is the goal with HRV? Do you want it to be less variability, more consistent? Does that mean that your body is in a more consistent state? Is that the goal? Yeah, it's interesting. So, you know, I initially got into this because I, as a teenager, had had, you know, a bout of like anxiety and depression and got into meditation because of that. So, so meditation actually was my entry point into HRV and, and um, yeah, what's interesting about all the meditative traditions, like all around the world and every culture has them, you know, um, uh, but all of them talk about the breath first, you know, the real importance of the breath. And it's so easy for us to like not pay attention to our breathing because I mean, it's happening no matter what, right? So it's like, it's uh, you know, it's going on. It's we've been doing it since we were born. Um, How could it really have that big of an impact on us? But what I think HRV shows you in a really like data clear way is look, your breath has a huge impact on your body and you can use it as a, as a driver to actually go deeper. And so, so for me, I think HRV and HRV biofeedback is kind of just like meditation with training wheels. It's, 
data-driven, you know, um, mindfulness. It's a way to get feedback while you're learning how to do things that have worked for people for thousands of years to, you know, change their mental state. Yeah. And in, in modern day, I think that that really resonates with me as something that would maybe help because, um, you know, I spend a lot of time playing video games or watching TV and, you know, we're on apps all the time. Our attention is always sort of split and, and being pulled in all these different directions. And we get so much feedback from our devices that are kind of giving you like these little bursts of dopamine when you find that missing Korok seed. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, having a device kind of giving you that feedback about your own body might be a way to sort of kind of ground you within this digital world that we live in and sort of give you a, um, give, give you something that kind of keeps you coming back and keeps you going. Because I think a lot of time people try to get into meditation and all the distractions sort of get in the way. And like, I tried using a meditation app once and it's like, it's on my phone. It, that is my portal to distraction. So I didn't get very far because I got distracted. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. 100%. I mean, this is the issue with, with a lot of meditation apps and is why I, I tried to find something better because I, I myself get distracted with my phone. It's built to, I mean, it's built to distract you. Like it's been designed really carefully by lots of smart people with a ton of measurement tools and a huge sample size. I mean, it's like we're, we're lab rats and they've done a good job of making the, the cheese really, really taste good. Um, <laughs> and it's easy when you're stuffing your face full of cheese, as I, as I do when I'm looking at an app and I'm flipping through videos to like not even be aware of what's happening in my body. It's, 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 um, and that's, I think what was kind of the impetus for me to invent this tool, which started as like a bunch of wires and, um, something you wouldn't want to take on a plane. Let's put it that way. It was, I mean, it's just a prototype, right? But I think what I was trying to do there was give myself a little tap on the shoulder. It's like in the moments where you're trying to meditate on a meditation cushion, that's hard in and of itself, but there's usually not any distractions, at least when you're sitting down trying to do it, it's painful. And it, it often is not like the best way to learn, but at least you're there, right? Um, when you're off of the cushion, that's when life happens. That's when all the real distractions happen. That's when the challenges happen. That's when the emotional, you know, um, self-regulation comes into play. So how do you like build that mindfulness muscle when you're out and about and have this feedback loop of like, oh, just let me know when I'm shifting internally so that I can just be aware of it. And the mindfulness of that is the first piece. And then now I can take, decide whether I want to do something about it. Right. But you need to know as a first step. Yeah. Is, is this device available? Like what, where are we at in the process of this, uh, this invention that you've created? Yeah. So we, we have, uh, thousands of, of customers. We're still a small company. We're a small business. Um, we just got an FDA version of this out, um, FDA class two version of this, which is covered by most insurance plans. So uh, we live out in California here. Um, and, uh launching a, a small clinic so you know if you live in california you can come to our website and see if you qualify it can help reduce the cost depending on your plan um but yeah we're we're just trying to get it out to more people i'm, I'm a scientist not a businessman so i i'm probably not doing it in the best possible way but um, <laughs> yeah we're trying to trying to help people trying to get it out yeah and it's called the the leaf l-e-i-f <laughs> yes l-i-e-f l-i-e-f like, uh, like relief. Yeah. Oh, gotcha. Cool. And what's the website? Uh, the website is getleaf, uh, G-E-T-L-I-E-F dot com. And yeah, you can reach out to us there. There's someone who is always around to answer your questions and yeah. 
Yeah, awesome. So interesting. A, a like mindfulness feedback device. I've never really heard of anything like that. It sounds really cool. Um, well, you've you've been through a ton in the last couple of years, and you, I mean, you're in this rare situation where you found something for a illness that doctors don't know how to treat that worked. Um, and I, that's incredible. You know, I love hearing stories like this. I love sharing stories like this. And I'm thrilled to hear that you're in such a better place now. So if you could give one piece of advice to other people out there living with long COVID who don't have the resources to do all this scientific research, or maybe, you know, now that you've done the research, maybe don't have the doctor who's willing to try to prescribe these things and see if they help. You know, it can be such a hopeless place to be um, for someone who has been there and made it through. Do you have any words of advice or words of encouragement that you could share with those people? I would say don't give up and help is on the way. I think the cavalry is coming, you know, um, as much as you can take care of yourself in the interim, try to do it. Uh, if you'd like to follow along with the research, you know, the, the group that I'm working with is the Long COVID Re uh, Trial Institute, which is lc19.org um, online. You can sign up there and follow us on Twitter if you want to see, you know, what the trials that we're putting together are going to be like and are interested in being a part of it in some way. Um, but that's the main message I would say. Just don't give up because it's easy to, to feel like there are no answers and, and you're never going to get better. But I, I really, really strongly believe that that is not going to be the case. And we are going to have good treatments for these drugs in the next few years. And, and my hope is that we are all around and can benefit from that. You know? Awesome. So exciting. Rohan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. What an incredible episode, a great conversation. I learned a ton. I love your story. And I love what you're all about. It's so interesting. Really cool, really exciting stuff on the podcast today. Please tell our listeners where they can go to connect with you. We already know getleaf.com. Uh, but if people want to connect with you online, is there anywhere else we can go? Yep. You can find me on Twitter. I'm RD108 um, on Twitter. Shoot me a message. And yeah, this has been such a pleasure. I'm really grateful to be here and then talk to you. Jesse, thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons, Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Danielle Signorelli, Alexandria Henderson, Justin Minnick, Heather Muncie, and Robert, and our $25 per month producers, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast.